Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Nottingham Playcast. The podcast is about to begin. Please take your seats. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Amplified podcast, a new strand in our Playcast series. I'm Craig Gilbert, the Amplified producer at Nottingham Playhouse, and during these unprecedented times, I've been holed up in my makeshift bedroom studio talking to artists of national and international renown. You may notice that these conversations lack a certain technical virtuosity. They've been recorded using nothing more than a laptop and occasionally patchy internet. But I hope what these chats lack in polish, we make up for an interesting, insightful conversation about life, career and process. Joining me today is the incomparable David Haig. David is an actor and playwright. His stage plays include My Boy Jack and The Good Samaritan, both for the Hampstead Theatre, and Pressure at the Royal Lyceum in Edinburgh and Minerva Theatre, Chichester. My Boy Jack was filmed for ITV, starring Daniel Ratcliffe and Kim Cattrall, and broadcast in November 2007. His distinguished acting career includes West End appearances in Yes, Prime Minister, Art, Dead Funny, Journey's End, The Country Wife and The Sea. At the National Theatre, he appeared in Alan Aitborn's House and Garden and at the Royal Court in Hitchcock Blonde and The Recruiting Officer. He's worked extensively for the Royal Shakespeare Company, playing, amongst others, Angelo in Trevor Nunn's production of Measure for Measure. He won the Olivier Award for Best Actor for Our Country's Good at the Royal Court and received nominations for Mary Poppins and Donkey's Years, both in the West End. His television and film appearances include Four Weddings and a Funeral, Downton Abbey, Killing Eve, the Thin Blue Line and Talking Heads. I hope you enjoy my conversation with David. Thanks a lot. Hello, David. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Nottingham Playhouse Amplify podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Craig, and I'm delighted to have a chance to chat to you. Brilliant. Tell us, uh, in these uh, unusual and difficult circumstances, what does social distancing look like for you? Well, it's that curious paradox I'm finding of a period of um, great devastation societally but you're forced into a rather cathartic position of being calm and very quiet and where I live in southeast London this particular corner very peaceful so one is having to reconcile um, a period which you almost would hanker after if it wasn't for the background um, against the terrible news that we receive every day and have to digest every day. So a, co- a contradictory experience is how I would define it. And uh, what have you been passing the time with? I'm doing a lot of writing at the moment and two commissions on the go, so um, which is great. And probably, <clears throat> excuse me, probably, uh, weirdly, I would have been doing that anyway and not acting for this month or two anyway. So actually, in that sense, life hasn't changed much. But what it has forced me to do also is a lot of gardening, which I love anyway. And we've got um, two of our kids. I have five children and two of them are resident in lockdown, as it were. Um, so it's so the four of us take along. We are eating incredibly good food. I think the likelihood is that with no effort whatsoever, I should put on at least a stone by the end of it. <laughs> but, uh, because, uh, 
because we just, you know, I get up in the morning and I think, yes, breakfast is deserved in these circumstances and then lunch. and <laughs> It goes on and on. But anyway, um, no, a lot of writing as well. So um, I'm busy. Um, and of course, you have uh, two uh, parallel careers as a, as a writer and an actor. But uh, yeah. tell us, where, where did that start? Where are, you, where are you from, David? All over the place because uh, my father was in the army when I was born. And so I was born in Aldershot Barracks Hospital. I was in Germany by the time I was six months old for two or three years. And then back to Hampshire for a while and then out to Germany again. And then when my father retired from the army, we moved to sort of Buckinghamshire, always south of the country, I suppose. Um, and... Uh, yeah, that's that's my background. My father was a sort of curious mixture, an extraordinary hybrid. He was in the army for 20 years and then ran the Haywood Gallery from when it first opened in 66. So um, extraordinary mix of artistic input and military input, which actually I think explains quite a lot because you meet both a lot of people who've been whose parents are in the arts, but you also meet a lot of uh, actors uh, who have parents in the forces. You know, Simon Russell Beale, Juliet Stevenson for two. Um, you know, who... And there's something about the the ritual of uniform and self-discipline and, and pageantry and, uh, and also an itinerant existence, you know, moving from place to place that sort of ties in, fits with... Um, an acting career. Where did you? Where did your relationship with uh, with the theatre start? Started when I was about nine or ten at my school uh, at a small preparatory school, private school in Kent, um, where I was cast as Jocasta, mother and wife of Oedipus in Oedipus Rex, at the, <laughs> at the age. Nine or ten, and there is a photograph extant of me in a pretty glorious yellow satin maxi dress, you know, talking to Oedipus, who was also nine or ten years old and had red, what looks like red crayons streaked down his cheeks to to give the impression of his eyes having been gouged out. And I, I was quite a quite a sweet rendering of of that great greek tragedy um that's brilliant i would love to i'd love to know whose idea it was to do oedipus with nine and ten year olds it's, uh, yeah. it's a hell of a choice and then did you did you carry on doing plays throughout your school life and and stuff yeah. like that were you always involved from that point I, w I was really because as somebody who was congenitally lazy i had suddenly found something that i was prepared to work incredibly hard at and I suppose in the traditional way of performers, I quite liked being at the centre of attention and showing off, even though, like many performers, there is a side to me that's actually quite reticent and likes to live quite a quiet life. So, um, you know, that whole paradox existed as well. Um, I, I did. I went on acting right through school and <clears throat> went to a, one of and extraordinarily at the time and I don't speak for the school now but for the time I was there incredibly repressive and retrogressive public school rugby school 
and um, I went on acting there and they foolishly actually because they didn't want us to be actors those senior public schools didn't want you to be an actor but they wanted you to sort of enjoy it on a purely um, social and amateur level so foolishly their school was divided into 12 houses as they were called and every house did a full-blown play every term so you were exposed to an enormous amount of drama and so they unintentionally were propelling their pupils into a desire to be actors uh, afterwards and i remember i did um this will this will make you laugh because it's part of that whole school educational side of uh, acting that, that i did a production of henry the fourth part two and i think i was the earl of warwick and one of the the english teacher came up to me after my performance which i was pretty pleased with i have to say and he said uh well i'd like you to know that i seriously consider that you were the fifth best performance of the evening which <laughs> ties in completely with that particular school's obsession with lists and orders and where you come in anything you know i mean to the extent that they used to read out in front of the school um at the end of the term the form list where you had come academically in your own class which involved if you came last you'd have sort of um 16th maitland major or something you know surname maitland and then these ludicrous latin definitions of where if he was the oldest Maitland in the school, he wouldn't be major or Maximus. And then you get major and then you get minor. Absolutely pathetic. But anyway, it would be read out so that the younger, you know, the one who'd failed most would be read out. 16th Maitland, 15th Hollis Brown or whatever, you know, and up there. And that whole idea of lists and orders was quite obsessive at those schools. Do you remember a moment where you thought, yes, this is the thing I'm going to pursue for my career and attempt yeah, to make a career yeah, doing? Yeah, very, very early on. Very early on. Even even back nearer to Jocasta, I thought, wow, this is fun and people actually do it for a living. So, yes, I definitely did. And by the time I left school, I was absolutely convinced. I did flirt for a beat when my father was running the Hayward. And I still maintain a huge love of the visual arts. And if somebody told me I had to go to a desert island and give up one of the arts or, or some of the arts, unusually, a lot of people say, well, the one they'd hold on to is music because of all its emotional connotations. I would definitely hold on to the visual arts, painting, sculpture, etc. And, and I love the paintings that we've chosen at home for that reason i think they, they're incredibly resonant so for a very brief period of about two to three years in the middle i suppose late teens and because my father was running an art gallery i thought maybe i'd like to go somewhere like the court old and read history of art and that that's my future but it didn't last drama school instead where where, where did you uh, where did you end up which I went, I went to lambda uh, after my I'd been expelled from the said public school that we were discussing. And uh, so after that, I went and did the sort of the hippie route and went and worked on a kibbutz in Israel and for eight months. And there I met a Danish girl and went 
back and lived in Denmark for two years doing varied jobs like, uh, well, for instance, I, I have a qualification to lay drains in the northern part of Jutland in Denmark, which very few other people of my age and nationality have, I have to say. But anyway, still, it's good to have something to fall back on. It is good to have something to fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> and I've I've got I've got to I've got to ask, considering um, what you said of your family background, how what was the household reaction when you uh, went off to a kibbutz and then were laying drains in northern Denmark? Uh, ambivalent is the safe mm. response to that, uh, yeah. but the but 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 it did lead to the incredibly positive reaction when I decided at the tail end of my Danish experience that I wanted to go to drama school, and applied for it and got in and uh, they were absolutely delighted that I'd found found something that I was prepared to work hard at you know. Uh, and was, was Lambda a good time for you? Was it a good experience? Very good time. I did leave uh, early because I with some friends formed a company that went up to the Edinburgh Fringe and an agent saw that and so I thought, well, why bother to stay the last two terms at drama school doing shows for each other when I could be out earning a living? So, so I did leave early and became an acting stage manager at a small repertory company near South End. And I've uh, I've been asking everyone uh, in these conversations when we when the uh, the conversation comes up about training. Obviously, people are stuck in their homes at the moment, but there will be uh, emerging actors and writers and directors out there listening to this. Uh, and so, do you remember any particular resources or books that were important to you when you were uh, thinking about becoming an actor and when you were in that training process? Well, obviously, I read all the books that I was told to read while I was at Lambda, which involved books on voice and stuff. And I, I think any of them are as good or as ineffective as you can make them or need them. You know, I mean, the one that was current 50 years, no, how, how long is it since I started acting? 77, so whatever that is. 8, 7, 9, 7, 2, 7, 7, 7 40, 42 or 3 years. Then it was... Uh, voice and the actor by Cicely Berry and now it'll be a different voice book I think it's quite a good finding a, a, a good voice book that you trust and therefore can work on you know sort of uh, uh, alacrity and agility vocally has got to be useful if you're in lockdown and, and haven't got anything else to do I suppose uh, I mean as somebody who writes and acts if there are any out there who are suspicious that they might want to do both what a great opportunity to flex their muscles as writers it, it's an extraordinarily great thing to have in parallel to acting for for many reasons but one of the most powerful reasons is that you never ever feel out of work or feel quite the same despair that i remember before i started writing when you have a long period out of work as as an actor because you, you have defined yourself as a writer as well. And therefore, if you're not acting, what do you do? You do what you do for a living, which is write as well. Um, and you might not necessarily earn a living as a writer when you first get going on it, but, but it is work per se, and therefore you feel valuable and valid when you're not actually acting, you know, working as an actor.
and I think it's interesting just then, you know, you talk about uh, periods out of work and whatnot, because when, when you look at someone's um, CV or list of achievements, uh, it can all seem very logical and like steps on a ladder. So yeah. I wonder if you can just talk about uh, your, uh, your early career as an actor uh, and what that was like. Take me back to that, because because this is another reassurance for people is there is a terrible misconception in the profession uh, people who are perceived to be successful, the absolute assumption that they are working 12 months a year, and it's invariably untrue, that it, because the productions they're doing because they're successful are quite vivid in the public's imagination and people know about those productions, they assume they're working all the time, which is just simply not true because things very rarely dovetail quite that perfectly. Um, but anyway, that aside, Early on in my career, I was helped enormously by, and this is where there's a danger of becoming a grumpy old man, but it's something I believe very strongly, that one of the great tragedies is the demise of, and actually you speaking on behalf of Nottingham Playhouse, it's quite interesting, um, but the demise of the repertory companies around the country is one of the saddest things that I've experienced because it, in the early days, I just used to work six, eight, ten, twelve months in any one repertory company doing endless different plays. You were only ever judged or criticised by one local newspaper, and that's it. And so you had, you were allowed to be confident, cliche coming up here, but confident enough to make mistakes and not mind too much if you made them. And nowadays, the pressure is so different. You know, the agent rings up and says, it's a self-tape for the new series of Star Wars. Or it's a self-tape, this is, I'm talking about, uh, two of my kids are actors, and I just hear them saying these things. Or it's a, you know, it's a, it's a self-tape for a, for a film that starts next year, and it's one of the main parts. You know, I mean, that, it, it, there is no gradation the gradual accumulation of ability and confidence. It's all so sudden and so also so distant and alien with the whole world of self-tapes. And uh, as a 64-year-old actor, I do not envy that side. There are so many good things about being an actor in 2020, but that, I think, is very, very difficult, very challenging. It's, it just strikes me so much better to get in a room with people and discuss it and work on it live. Uh, yeah, and, and talking about repertory. So before I worked for Nottingham Playhouse, I was the New Works Associate at the Everyman in Liverpool uh, right. during during the period a couple of a uh, couple of years ago when uh, that theatre tried to reinvent the repertory company. And uh, we we had a brilliant we had a brilliant time. And to be uh, with a group of actors for it was six months that our company was in residence for working on a range of work. Um, it was just remarkable, really. Uh, I mean, the yeah. profound relationships that those actors developed in a creative sense, and the work they were able to produce, and sort of the depth of play they were able to go to as a result of being together for so long was yeah. incredible. But unfortunately yeah. for us at the time, it was um, it was just sustainable um but uh it is it is a great way to work and a great way for um yeah actors to uh to grow i think we had a couple yeah. of early graduates from that company who um uh, well it was just amazing to watch them uh, over the course yeah. of six months become what they became by the end it was great yeah yeah because then well you know there's, there's nothing to be scared of there's no pressure to feel under you're just enjoying doing something you've always wanted to do and and a huge range of 
parts. It's what I think it's sort of, it, I suppose it's slightly similar to that um, safe world that a lot of students feel when they're at drama school. It's extended, except that unbelievably you're also being given a wage packet, which used to amaze me every week <laughs> for the first time. <laughs> took me years to actually take for granted that I would be paid for the job. It seemed extraordinary. But um, but certainly I think it's incredibly sad. I mean, you know, and uh, oh God, I can remember writing letters, then of course not emails, but letters uh, to so many different theatre companies around the country, all of whom gave regular general auditions or occasionally specific ones for specific plays, but generally speaking, you know, general ones for the new season, and then they'd work out what plays, what parts you were going to be in, etc., etc. And it was a very exciting thing to do. There we go. The Nottingham Playhouse still exists, which is a wonderful thing. So many of them don't. And so, uh, working in the in those repertory companies, and then what what was the what was the path for you to sort of uh, a, a higher profile career, if you like? What what happened? Uh, um, well, I. I did. I also I'm just trying to think clearly. I mean, I sort of then there was a sort of ladder within the repertory system as well. And you used I used to feel quite proud if I'd moved from a, a lowly ish repertory company slightly higher up the ladder. But eventually what happened was I started to get a few um, small fringe theatre jobs in London as well. Um, and at one of those, Matt Stafford Bark came to the show, and then I went up for a play called Tom and Viv in 1985, um, which was a play about uh, T.S. Eliot and his disastrous marriage to Vivian Haigwood. And I played Vivi's brother, which was just one of the great parts. Uh, especially as he wasn't Tom or Viv. So there you go. You see, I went into that with slightly less pressure and just enjoyed myself hugely. And the production was very successful. And I suppose that was um, that was the moment, theatrically speaking at least, that I was able to move on. And then I went to the RSC for three or four years on the back of that. And so it progressed. Uh, as far as filming was concerned or television, I did various strange and wonderful television jobs early on um i was uh, a warlock on a children's television series called the moon stallion in which i had to, to ride this extraordinary horse bareback all over the south downs um i'd been taught to ride when i was a kid so that that paid off um and then uh, i took over a galaxy in doctor who by cloning myself which was quite an entertaining little streak of villainy space villainy um and uh and so gradually and then the first i suppose my first big break on film was um portrait of a marriage which was about uh vita sackville west marriage to harold nicholson in which i played harold nicholson and, and then things sort of progressed from there on that front as well. And uh, you mentioned though um, working at the Royal Court in the late 1980s. Now, in, yeah. other com in other conversations I've had on this podcast, so a book that has come up time and time again is uh, Letters to George by Max oh, Stafford, yeah. Clark, his account of rehearsing the recruiting officer and Our Country's Good. Of yeah. course, you were in that company and I believe you won the Olivier Award for Best Newcomer 
for your uh, for your work in our country's good. I wonder if I know it's a long time ago, but can you tell us a little bit about being in that company and being in that process and also working at what was at the time one of the most important theatres in the world? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was an absolute highlight. And as I said to Max, actually, uh, one of the last times I saw him, um, I said I could have stopped at that moment after that joint production because nothing the other things actually I was wrong because other things actually have been as fulfilling since but at, but at the time I felt this is what I wanted to do it for and it's been nothing could better this you had two very contrasting brilliant plays one that existed and one that we uh, which Timberlake Vertenbaker wrote but we on the basis partially of our improvisations over a long period of time, directed by, I still believe, one of the two or three finest theatre directors in the world, who I always, and if you, there are so many people I can mention who also think <clears throat> that he was a, a form of guru to them, really, um, as stage actors. And he was directing it, uh, the process of, improvising this play that related to the recruiting officer but at the same time dealt with something else very visceral and provocative and emotional and was incredibly exciting um great cast and as you say you felt very much at the important center of a certain sort of theater while you were at the royal court and this is where great companies like joint stock you know a lot of their traditions had moved to that theatre. So it really was a supreme highlight. And, and one of the surreal things, of course, is that um, all my kids, when they did um, English or drama at A-level, uh, get handed a copy of Our Country's Good and have to stare at their father about 30 years before, looking mournfully in love into the eyes of uh, Mary Brennan in Our Country's Good, you know, and on the centre page of their text, their school text, which must have been a surreal experience for them. <laughs> um, and so now tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about the writing um, and when that starts for you. When do you, when do you make the decision that you're, you're going to write plays? So in the mid-90s, I decided that I, I suppose wanted to be in control of the creative entity of... of uh, as a writer rather than as an actor just always being a part of the entity <clears throat> and and also as I said earlier in this podcast I, I, I wanted something to balance and live in parallel with the um, process of acting uh, so that I never felt out of work and anyway I just liked that quiet isolation and cerebral sort of input that is required by writing and so the, um, the first play I wrote was, is now actually on the A-level syllabus, which is called My Boy Jack, which was about um, uh, Rudyard Kipling's inadvertent complicity in his son's death. He, he forced his son Jack, didn't force, but uh, encouraged his son Jack to, to fight in the First World War, even though he'd been turned down twice for having uh, very poor eyesight 
And Jack wanted to fight as much as his father wanted him to fight, but in, in the event he was killed in his first action in the rain at the Battle of Luz. And Kipling really never recovered from that remorse and regret and guilt. He recovered, but you know what I mean. <clears throat> and so that's the story of my boy Jack. And I wrote very many, very poor, very boring versions of it. And where I was lucky was that by this time, I did know quite a few theatre directors. So I'd send each boring draft to them and would get back, uh, get a letter back from each director saying, yes, you're right. It is boring. You've got to find, you've got to get it moving quicker. You got So I had all these, including Max, actually, all these people who gave me incredibly useful um, advice on the next stage of writing the script until eventually I sent it to um, Hampstead, to John Dove at Hampstead, who said, yeah, I'll do this, I'll do it tomorrow. And this was the first time I'd had a genuinely positive response about it. And so he gave it to the artistic director, David Topper at Hampstead, this is the old Hampstead Theatre, not the one that everybody knows. Um, and uh, she said, yeah, well, well, we'll do a reading. And so we did a reading and discussed what it needed extra. And at the end of that, he said, yep, we'll do it. And I can remember, <clears throat> and I've said this in interviews before, but I can remember that the drive away from Hampstead, having heard that they were going to do it, that was as fulfilling as the experience I referred to earlier in the late 80s at the Royal Court. It was a wonderful feeling of fulfilment. And uh, there's something that, uh, so over the weekend, I uh, I read My Boy Jack and I lis listened to the uh, LA Theatre Works production of Pressure, um, which is uh, another play of yours. Yeah. Um, and one thing uh, that really struck me, uh, sort of encountering both of those plays in a very short space of time, is how in charge you are of structure and how finely wrought your plays are in terms of their dramatic momentum and how the pieces fit together. Um, yeah. Where does your understanding of structure come from? And I've no idea. I, I think it's something, because I keep being told this, and in fact, in, in uh, you know, you've picked two plays that did reasonably well, and there was another play I wrote <coughs> for Hampstead that was produced, but I've also got, um, I've just written two new plays, and one that is really quite poor and has never been done. But the one thing all of them seem to have is structure, and some of them lack an emotional heart or intensity, which is perhaps why they're the poorer of the rock plays I've written. So I, I don't know where the structure comes from. I think it's probably some sort of Virgoan trait in my personality that needs to see things building bricks placed in certain suitable structures and you know what I mean that, that it's an instinctive thing that I almost an obsessive thing that I can't do without it and I always work chronologically on these plays as well um, I think that, that both with pressure and my boy Jack um, I knew what and actually one of the ones I'm working on at the minute I knew what the ending was and that's very useful in creating a strong structure is that if you know the ending, it's just which route do I get there that is most exciting and releases the information at the right moment. And there's another play which isn't good that I've written where I never knew what the ending was and therefore the beginning is all very impressive, but it just peters out. And you would not say the same to me, Greg, 
about my sense of structure if you read that play because it's certainly not well structured. <laughs> um, so I, um, you said you mentioned there that you uh, you write chronologically. I wonder um, when you when you're sitting down to to write a play when you've uh, when you've settled on your your idea. What does um, what does your writing day look like? Sort of do you do you do a full day? Do you just do the morning? How does it? How do you manage that? I get up very early, force myself to start writing straight away, and then that goes on for about anything from about two to four hours. That's longhand, not on a computer. I then type that the day's work onto a computer, print it up, whereupon it looks like a different script. There's something, it, this may be different from writer to writer, but for me, once I see it in print, it feels completely different. And lines that seem absolutely fine when I wrote them in longhand or when I typed them onto the computer and stared at them on the screen look either better or worse when they're actually in print. So then at the tail end of the day, I edit what I've printed up from that day's work and then look at it all again the next day. And uh, I wonder if if you had to if you had to had to make a decision or uh, yeah had to choose wh which is more which is more satisfying for you is it being an actor uh, and um, making a, being in a great piece of work or or writing the plays and being there on on your on your opening night as a playwright? Well, most of my plays I've been in, <laughs> so so i've always uh, had the double whammy of doing a first night where i know i'm being judged as a performer and a writer which and if that isn't enough pressure i don't know what is but um but if i had to it depends you see you're asking me now as somebody in lockdown who's doing a lot of writing and i would answer probably i'd give up acting now because i'm in my 60s and because i love writing but having made that decision i would probably be miss acting so profoundly within a short time that i'd go back on my decision i think both have their own appeals there's there's nothing quite like a night where you feel you're really flying as an actor <clears throat> and you almost if it, if it's if you're lucky and it's going well you, you sort uh, this is going to sound so pretentious but i'm going to risk it because hopefully i haven't been particularly pretentious till this point but you do almost feel as if you're out having an out-of-body experience you feel as if you can't put a foot wrong that, that there's something if you know the character well enough you are sailing to the end of the evening and you're safe safe is a less arrogant way of putting it you feel that it's going to be okay you know and on other nights quite the opposite you feel everything is wrong your confidence is jilted and you have to rely on technique enormously. And, and the irony of both those different nights is that if somebody came to see both performances, they probably wouldn't know the difference. Yeah, there, there is. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's an odd thing and, and possibly a really necessary thing that it's almost impossible for an actor to judge the quality of their work. I mean, obviously, I'm not speaking personally, but from the people that I've spoken to, and, and obviously I live with an actor, um, and I, f I find that really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely true. Uh, and, and often the frustration of feeling you're doing your best work and it just isn't the one that clicks, you know, with, with the outside world. <clears throat> um, so I, th I think it's absolutely true. You, you can really 
deceive yourself. And of course, as a, a, a writers, I mean, you know, I still sort of think of myself as an actor who writes, but that's mainly because, rather than the writer who acts, I mean, that's mainly because I started as an actor, I think. But, um, but imagine being a novelist and doing a 600-page novel that just doesn't hit the bullseye as far as the public's concerned. The amount of emotional and intellectual uh, energy you put into a, a work like that, it must be incredibly frustrating. But on a small scale, you can really feel you're you know, hitting the target as an actor and it just isn't the one that clicks. You can't, you, it's very difficult to judge yourself and when you're doing well. I just have a couple of uh, quick questions to finish off, David. And um, first of all, okay. can you tell us about the last work of art that absolutely blew your mind? And by work of art, I mean anything, be it visual art, um, film, music, paintings, anything you like. Well, I'll say this one because actually there's been quite a few, but I'll say this one because it was the one that went straight into my head, which is we went to see the Lucian Freud self-portraits um, at uh, the Royal Academy. And there's one room where he seems to be so ruthlessly honest in his portrayal of himself that I really felt I was looking at a series of portraits that are as great as Rembrandt's self-portraits in their own way, in their own 20th century way, you know. And um, I thought they were so powerful. And it, it, it's, it's, I think great self-portraits are incredibly exciting because if they're honest enough, nobody knows that person's, if they're honest, nobody knows them better than themselves. I mean, on, often we're not honest and therefore we don't know ourselves that well. But, but a great painter, when he's painting or she is painting themselves, then um, I think that's very powerful. So the Lucian Freuds, yeah. Excellent. And finally, just to finish off, can you recommend yeah. something for us to all enjoy while we're social distancing? Recommend uh, an artistic? Yes, or, or well, any, anything you like, really. Something, something you think that's uh, a, great, a great thing to engage with while we're stuck at home. Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't really be saying this, I suppose, but I, but in a way, I found it, I, it comes back to the very beginning of this podcast, which is to, in these appalling circumstances, if you're trying to drag a positive out of it, the catharsis of being quiet for a period of time. Brilliant. David, thank you very much for talking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you too. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this specially recorded episode of the Nottingham Playhouse Playcast Amplify podcast series. To find out more about the Amplify programme or the rest of our work, visit nottinghamplayhouse.co.uk and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all the latest episodes as they're released.